Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontefract. Today in the house, oh my gosh, Aisha Bursal. Aisha, good to see you. Let's talk a bit about you first, and then we'll get some <laughs> answers from you. Aisha is one of the world's leading industrial designers. She's designed hundreds of products from, get this, toilet seats to office systems to potato peelers to, yes, concept cars. You've probably held or sat something, sat on something she's designed for Herman Miller Knoll, Target, or Toyota, among many, many others. Her work has earned her several nicknames. These are fantastic, by the way. The Queen of Toilets, the Queen Bee for Offices, the Design Evangelista. Oh, my gosh. Interior <laughs> Design Magazine awarded her Best of Year Product Designer of 2020. She's one of the most creative people in business, according to who? Fast Company. She was shortlisted among the world's top eight coaches by Thinkers 50 for the Marshall Goldsmith Distinguished Achievement Award for coaching and mentoring. She's recognized as the number one coach for life design. Born in Turkey, she came to New York City with a Fulbright scholarship where she now lives and works. Her latest book, which we're going to talk about extensively today, is fantastic. It's called Design the Long Life You Love, a step-by-step -step guide to love purpose, well-being, and friendship. Aisha, so good to see you. Great for being here today. Thank you. Now, first question for you, my friend. You stated... Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was a great introduction. The only thing you forgot to mention is that I'm also your friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you are very, very kind. I've always wanted to do this with you because not just the friendship, but you're a trailblazer when it comes to design and now design with life and work. So this book, I mean, Design the Long Life You Love, I know it's sort of the next in the chapter of all your great work that you're doing in terms of books and work. I want to ask you this question about design. So life itself is, as you say, imagination. And I love that. And you say design can impact our lives through imagination. So how do we reconcile design with life? That's question number one for you, Aisha. Wow, we're starting with the easy questions. Thanks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, for me, it started with something that is really intuitive, this idea that uh, my goal in life is to design the life I love. And it's because I saw life as the best and biggest project of all. And I thought life is just like a design project. It's full of problems and challenges, things that we need and want that oppose each other. And, you know, wouldn't it be great if we can design it? Because design is all about problem solving mm -hmm. with creativity. And th so that was the beginning of that idea. And... And the more I've worked on it, the more I realize it's really when I say designing your life, what I'm saying is how can you become an optimist using design tools so that when you have problem, instead of going, oh, no, I have a problem, that you can go, oh, yes, I have a problem and I can, you know, this will help me think about things differently. Okay, so... How would you define then sort of de the design of life or life design? Like, is there some sort of definition that you're you're using that kind of is on the elevator pitch when you're you're going up 30 floors and people say, oh my God, it's Aisha. 
What does design and life mean to you or life design? I think the elevator pitch, because it's short, how how many floors are we going? About 30, <laughs> let's say. It's, we're in New York, so maybe 50, yeah. Yeah, so I would s- simply say, um, you know, design the life you love so that you can think about your problems with optimism and turn challenges into opportunities using design tools. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So with that in mind. so We're only on the 10th floor. (laughs) (laughs) See, you're always, uh, you expedite things in a way that's efficient. So that's exactly what we need, Aisha. Thank you. Okay. So with that in mind, here's a more um, potentially confrontational question. I hope not. I hope you take it from one friend to another. Why should someone care about design and the designing of their life? Like, why does it matter to you? Oh, such a good question. It's actually a, it's not confrontational. It's a very valid question. The reason I do it and I keep on doing it is because design process and tools are transformational. And when I design, as you mentioned, everything from toilets to um, concept cars, I try to take problems and turn them on their heads and come up with these great solutions that will make somebody's life better, bring them joy, bring them closer to safety, make something more intuitive. Now imagine, sorry, that's me hitting my my microphone. Now imagine taking the same process and applying it to your life to make your life a little bit more joyful, bring you closer to something that you love and make it a little bit safer. And, And the reason that I keep doing it is because nobody thanks me for designing a great potato peeler, frankly. <laughs> shame, <laughs> shame on them, Aisha. Shame, shame on them. <laughs> you know, nobody stops me on the street and say, oh my God, Aisha, you know, your potato peeler has changed <laughs> my life. But they do say that about designing their life. And I've had this so many times where people will say, you know, your process transformed or changed my life. I was doing this and now I'm doing that. And I'm and and they say that with like I'm happy or I'm doing what I love and that's why I keep on doing it. Well, I guess I won't say this spuds for you. That seems too cheeky, but uh let me um <laughs> let me ask you a question about something that's a principle of yours that I found in the book several times and that's the deconstruction reconstruction process. So, can you help me understand and unpack w- what that is and then how and why you've used that, not just in the book, to apply it to your life as well. So deconstruction, reconstruction, take us through that one. So deconstruction is really taking something apart to see what something is made up of. And in doing that, you take complex ideas and you break them into their parts. And the smaller parts are more feasible for us to think about. So first of all, it's the first step to take something complex and simplify it. And And you see this a lot, like in articles, so many articles I'll read and they'll say, oh, when you deconstruct the political system or the health crisis or this and that, what they're saying is when you look at what it's it's made up of, and then they'll explain that. And same thing with our life. But what most people don't talk about is the, well, now that it's deconstructed, how are you going to reconstruct it so that it's better? What's Mm. the new idea here? 
And so that's what I try and do by coupling these two things is, yes, let's deconstruct something, but then let's also reconstruct it. And the, the step in between is how do you go from what you've deconstructed to what you can now reconstruct? The, the, that middle step is all about creativity, thinking about the same things differently. Two friends of mine and also guests on this show are uh, Roger L. Martin and Jennifer Riel, and, and both of them obviously are, are big advocates and you know, designers of design thinking. Have, have you ever... Um, Hold on, you're, you're friends with Roger Martin? I, <laughs> Hold on. Jeez, my, I'm name-dropping it. I should, I should do this. <laughs> here we go. Oh, folks, look out. There must be... There it is. <laughs> the, opposable. The, the Opposable Mind by... Roger Martin. Oh my God. You Canadians are so good. It's what can I say? <laughs> well, there's only a few of us, so we have to stick together. That's uh, part of the problem. <laughs> how does uh how has design thinking influenced um your thinking when it comes to like deconstruction, reconstruction, or you know, the book itself and how you design your your best life? So the the whole thing came about because um I'll I'll tell you a little story, but in 2008, the American economy crashed. Yes. And unfortunately, I was living in New York and not in Canada. <laughs> so, so We won't hold that uh, against you, Ashley. Don't worry. Yeah. yeah. I'm still trying to get up there to the north. But, but um, seriously, it um, deconstructed my life because all our clients took their work in-house, which made sense, right? They needed to cut budgets. And we went from being a very successful, I mean, frankly, really successful design and innovation studio to no clients. It seemed like overnight. And, and I used that time. Uh, I have a friend and collaborator, Leah Kaplan, who encouraged me to do this, to use my time to think about how I think, because she said, Aisha, you think differently. And I thought, oh my God, at least one person still believes that I have something to offer. And so I used that time to think about how I think and develop deconstruction, reconstruction. That was my internal intuitive design process and externalized it. And, and that became our process for teaching people, our clients and their users, how to think like designers. And it's truly problem solving. That's all it is. Um, it doesn't mean that you know, oh, you know, you learn deconstruction, reconstruction, and now you can design chairs and automobiles. No, that's really, you, you need to be an expert in that. But it, it really takes the idea of design as a problem-solving discipline and teaches you how to solve any and all problems. And we've experimented with, I don't know, hundreds of different topics. Mm -hmm. So I know that this process works. So you can trust the process. And I also know that ordinary people who I call non-designers affectionately ordinary people, <laughs> uh, that they're extraordinarily creative. And because I've done it with thousands of people, but they need a process. You can't just tell someone, oh, go have like an original life, you know, design your life, uh, make it better. It's my responsibility to give everyone a process. That's what I do. And then, wow, magic happens. 
Well, speaking of magic, uh, Design the Long Life You Love is a magical book, and you've uh, outlined it in four pillars, I might call them, um, love, purpose, well-being, and friendship. So if you if you don't mind, I, I'd love to tackle each of those four themes uh, next, starting with love. And particularly with love, the question I have for you, Aisha, is you've come up with, and I love mashup words, by the way, so you've come up with a mashup word uh, and I don't know how to say it because I read the book, Love Experience or Love Experience. I'm not sure. You'll tell me. Love Experience. Love, okay. Like love Experience. <laughs> Even better. So how does what is Love Experience, first of all, this combination of love and experience? And then help me understand how Love Experience can be applied, um, not just in life, but life includes work. So I'd love a little bit of your insights and how Love Experience plays its part in work itself. Oh, thank you so much for asking because um, there's a reason why those pillars start with love. I think, you know, it, if you start there, everything else kind of falls into line. Uh, so uh, love and experience together is because our research was with people who are 65 and older, so 65 to 90 plus across the United States. We traveled for a year and invited older people to come co-design their life and work with us. Mm -hmm. And what we learned from them are the these pillars, these four pillars. And the experience piece of it comes from how older people are experts at life and work. And they have so much to teach us. And one of the things that I learned from older people that I want to implement, but not just only for me, but for our teen children, you know, young children, is this notion of loving yourself, self-love that happens naturally as we age. Because I think we realize that, you know, you can be kind to yourself and you can have self-compassion. And, um, you know, that comes from experience. Mm -hmm. And my goal is, that's a great lesson, and you don't have to be 90 years old old to practice it. You know, in, in the book, actually, I um, have a very simple habit, uh, kind of like how can you learn to love yourself, and it comes from our mutual friend, Bill Carrier. So, Fantastic. I love it. Okay. Get it? See what I did there? I love it. See? Um <laughs> <laughs> the second of the four that we get into is purpose. Now, uh, cheekily, my my second book was called The Purpose Effect, How One Can Build Meaning in Yourself, Your Role, and Your Organization. And so one of the lines that I love is you're, you suggest that when we're younger, you know, we derive this sense of purpose from well-defined organizations, right? So our school, our place of worship, our office, right, and so on. And you've called these ready-made purpose, I guess, um, places or events or opportunities. But then you've also made the point under the purpose pillar that over time, you know, these these structures like uh, work, et cetera, they kind of begin to recede or they they disappear a little bit. And this kind of second wave or career or phase occurs where purpose starts uh, almost emanating from within. And I think you've called it um, self-made purpose. So. I'd like you to extrapolate the difference between ready-made purpose and self-made purpose, if you will. Thank you. I, I'm so glad we're talking about that because um, ready-made purpose, just like you said, comes from 
these social structures and constructs that we take for granted. And then there comes a time, and I think it's really why we have midlife crises, <laughs> is because um, either those structures recede or they're not enough for us. And so a lot of people who come to my sessions and workshops are people who are in their 40s and 50s who've done most of the things that life expected of them. And then suddenly they find themselves in this place where they're like, okay, what next? Mm. And I call that um, this kind of like there's a line where you go from what life expects of you to what you expect out of life. Oh, it's brilliant. <laughs> and then that's where you, you need to create self-made purpose. And so it's really, the, I'm sure the things that you've also talked about, which are, you can create meaning and meaning could come from helping other people. It could be standing for something you believe in. It could come from learning. It could come from teaching. It could come from sharing. And so these are, I mean, there are many ways to create meaning. It comes from creativity and it's just becoming aware of that. And once you become aware of it, you can then find different ways of making it happen. It's just uh, recognizing that you need to rely on yourself. One of the things I gathered from um, not just the book uh, content, but from the diagrams that you've got in this particular section as well under purpose, is that purpose doesn't end. It's a journey. And I think many individuals miss the point about purpose that it does alter it can augment it can evolve and so how do you uh reconcile if you will Aisha, with that that particular comment do you agree and i think you'll say yes but tell us a bit about your insights on that point you know what i love is with marshall goldsmith who's um you know we're both part of 100 coaches and he's uh my mentor and by the way i'm Marshall's coach. So yes. <laughs> we have these conversations and uh, he's in the book and he talks about every breath is a new you. And I love that idea that, um, and, you know, he's a, a, a modern Buddhist, you know, Marshall is. And so it's a very Buddhist idea, but I think it's, it gives me hope and it boosts my optimism that there is no end to this. And every day you can wake up and think about, okay, what's my purpose? And I, I frankly do these days, especially because my kids are about to take off. And, and so a big piece of my purpose as a mom uh, is going to leave the nest. And, and that leaves me with, okay, what's my purpose now? You know, um, how do I create meaning beyond my work? And, and that it's something that, like you said, is transformed and changes, I think is beautiful mm -hmm. because otherwise it'd be so boring that, you know, my day in, day out, same purpose, but it's not. And Well, and again, you're, you're making the point within the purpose pillar, the second of the four, that this is a long life. And so there are stages and ages. And so purpose evolved, evolved, sorry, whether you have kids or not, whether your kids are teens or, or babies 
or whether they're young adults. And so I, I completely agree. It's what I wanted to point out is your your sketches within the purpose section actually opened up um, a great bit of thinking for me as similarly, I have a 19, 17 and 15 year old and I'm watching and observing them. You know, some are still in the big house we have, but they're going to be downsizing soon into their little apartments in the town in which they go to school and start their life and build their way up. I just love your cycles from the diagrams and the sketches. So anyway, I could talk for days in your sketches and your design thinking here. I want to get to the third and fourth. The third is well-being, the third pillar that is. And so well-being, you point out, is a combination of both mind and body. But you also do some really good articulation to purpose. And so to tell me the relationship between well-being, purpose, uh, mind, and body. Yeah. So one of the things, again, like you said, when we start thinking about our long life, which is now 20 to 30 years longer compared to people who lived 100 years ago, um, that opens up a whole new era. And in thinking about that, you know, taking the long view, you realize that um, what your well-being changes over time. So for young people, it's really their body is over their mind in the sense that their hormones are kind of firing, they're in top shape, and yet their logic is not quite developed. You know, mm -hmm. So it's this notion that in terms of proportions, your body has a bigger influence than your mind. And then somewhere along the line in our 30s and 40s and 50s, it kind of evens out where you know, we have body-mind balancing out. And I talk about we have an intellectual growth spurt. Mm -hmm. um, yes. I forgot to mention when you're younger, it's a physical growth spurt, and then you have this intellectual growth spurt. And then as you grow older, it becomes where your mind is over your body, and we we start to have crystallized intelligence, which is really something that comes from our experience again. Uh, and, you know, we see patterns more easily, we can deduce things more quickly, and it's a huge advantage. And we have our growth spirit is in spirit, our soul grows. And, and so our well being is directly linked with our spirit, which is directly linked with our purpose because our purpose gives us a sense of meaning. Mm -hmm. well, the, I, I, it wasn't lost on me, the sandwich, right? So you start out with love, and you've got purpose and well-being, that sandwich in the middle, which then is backed up by, the, I guess, the other piece of bread in the sandwich, which is you know friends and relationships. And you have such an extraordinary point that you make uh, in the book about friends. And, and it's not something I've, I've ever read before, and that is making friends who are nine years younger and nine years older. <laughs> yes. And I thought it was just brilliant. So tell us a bit about what that strategy is and that mantra for you and your team. So again, I mean, the advantage of this book is the collaboration and the research we did with older people. So that idea of having a friend who is nine years older and nine years younger comes from one of the participants. And when we heard it, like you, we were like, oh my God, that's so memorable and so important. And 
it made us realize, like for me, I realized that most of my, my friends are older and I adore them, uh, but I don't have many younger friends. And so it makes you catch yourself and helps you be intentional about, hold on one second, like then how can I, that notion of intergenerational friendship is so important because we can really um, give each other things and, you know, compliment each other's thinking. And it made me realize, oh, I need to nurture younger people, you know, my students, become friends with my students. And, and that, that's a key issue. Yes. Oh, but I love it. It was a really astute point. Uh, a personal shout out to uh, Aaron Lee, Adam Creek, and Stephen Hill, who are my nine and nines on other side of me uh, of my <laughs> age. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, now, tucked away near towards the end of the book was a line I must call out because I, I thought it was just poetic and uh, in a kind of a weird way, but I'll, let me explain it. You say that, uh, right, living through the COVID-19 pandemic, I saw life as metamorphosis. Mm. And you diagram and sketch out, you know, the caterpillar, the cocoon, the butterfly. D tell me, um, as we're as we're thinking about designing, you know, the long life that we we love, what you've learned and what you've experienced personally and by observation of the pandemic, and and where, I guess, what we need to really be thinking about with this metamorphosis, I should. So I'm so glad you. Uh, caught that because it's uh, one of the things that was very helpful to me. You know, as designers, we love metaphors because they're very visual and mm -hmm. they help us explain things that are newer or different in relation to something that we know. So when you use the metaphor of metamorphosis and, and explain COVID and the pandemic and how we sheltered in place, through that metaphor, everybody gets it because, you know, we were like um, caterpillars before. And then once we started sheltering in place, we were there and everything we knew break, you know, broke down. Right. And we didn't quite know when we were going to come out. But then when we came out, we came out with new wings and ready to fly. Um, it helped me understand the pandemic process. and. And it actually, I started writing about this in the pandemic. So it gave me hope. Mm. And I was able to give other people hope to say, look, we're going to come out of this and we're going to be butterflies. We're going to have wings and, and it's not going to be the same. So sometimes I uh, just laugh at some corporations thinking, we're going to go back the way it was before. And I'm like, ah, nope. You don't realize your your people are now butterflies, and they are they were completely deconstructed. Everything we knew was broken down. It's not going to go back the way you think it's going to go back, and that's the beauty of it, you know. Well, I not only I love the metaphor. Uh, whoever was listening to me um, for the end of twenty 2020 twenty through twenty twenty one. Aisha, I kept saying, we are in the cocoon of work and life right now. Wait till you see what happens when we burst out as butterflies. And there are, I'm reading your book and I see this. I'm like, oh my gosh, why didn't I talk to Aisha earlier? Because this would have been great. Okay, <laughs> we, got, we got time for one last question. Then we will find out more about where we can find out more about you. So in the book, there are tons of case studies of people, some of our mutual friends from 
from Ron Carucci to Michael Bungay Stanier, Marshall Goldsmith, you've mentioned, um, Bill Carrier, and others that I haven't met, um, but know of, like Chip Conley and Cindy Gallup and Lee Kim. Like it's just full of great anecdotes and snippets and learnings from from people that uh, obviously we both respect. It's actually not the question. I was just tipping off people should get the book because there's some great insights from other people. But you say that life is our biggest project. And with that, I want to ask you a personal slash professional question, Aisha. What made you shift then if life is our biggest project from designing the chair I'm sitting on today, toilets, potato peelers, to helping people design their life? Yeah, it's, um, again, a, a very astute question. And I still design products, but what I love about showing people how to design their life and subsets of their life, like yeah. work, like relationships, like parenting, uh, leadership, you know, all these things um, is because if you have this tool set, you can look at your problems and think about how to see them differently and turn them into opportunities. And, and so it's really a, a process for new ideas. And when you have new ideas, what's amazing is you get excited by them and it gets you out of your problem state into your opportunity state. And then you can dare change the world. And that's really my, my subtle message here is my goal through my books and through my sessions is to help people be comfortable when they're faced with problems because we have problems all the time, you know, and some of them of our own making, some of them are imposed on us uh, as we learned in the pandemic or, you know, uh, inflation, you name it. Um, and and the, the, this is a set of tools that are very accessible. I mean, and that's the whole idea that I was able to simplify design process to a level where a kid can do it and a 90-year-old person can do it. And it really helps you get to the other side of what's my opportunity? What's my new idea? And once you get that, you're off to the races. Couldn't agree more. I mean, it is a playbook for life. Aisha, thanks so much. The book, again, is Design the Long Life You Love, a step-by-step -step guide to love, purpose, well-being, and friendship. Aisha, where can we find out more about you and the book? So you can find me on, like my name, AishaBursal.com backslash newsletter. And then you can subscribe to my newsletter and you'll know what I'm doing. And every Wednesday at 5 p.m. New York time, I do a virtual tea where some amazing people come together from different disciplines and we practice how to design our life and work. So that's one place. Of course, you can find me on LinkedIn at Yourself, and And you can find the book on Amazon or any, you know, uh, online bookstore or hopefully your neighborhood bookstore. Uh, please take this with a very term of confident endearment. And that is it's, it's almost rare these days for me to get uh, swept off my feet by a book. 
and the way in which that you've presented this from its design, uh, its sketches and graphics, its case studies of the aforementioned people and others, and just the ease in which that you can help a a six-year-old and a 96-year-old kind of sort out how they might want to live a long life that they love. I just wanted to provide you with a very Canadian hat tip uh, to you, the New Yorker, Aisha slash Turk. (laughs) <laughs> on um, on, a, on a job really well done. I think it's just a splendid, splendid book. And uh, if you're listening or watching, get it. Uh, I, I truly believe this is a, a game changer. Aisha, thank you so much for this today. Really appreciate it, folks. Um, Aisha Bursal, wow, what a half an hour. Thank you. You've been watching and listening to another episode of Leadership Now. Thanks, Aisha. Thank you, Dan.